grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Revelation. Um, where did Chris get to last week? I watched it, but I, I can't remember where he stopped. 1911? All right, so we are ready for verse 11 tonight. I'll probably give you a very quick reminder of how we got to verse 11. Um, before we start tonight, I want to um, I want to give you a timeline of end time events. All right. So everything we studied in Revelation, I want to give you a timeline so that you can kind of get an overview picture, if you will, of the events that are going to take place, uh, beginning uh, with the rapture of the church. You remember that Revelation chapter uh, one through three, I believe it was, was about. The, the direction for the churches, the, the inspection of the churches, I guess you could say. And so it was about Jesus walking through the churches and him uh, examining uh, the condition of the churches. And then he comes back in chapters, I think specifically in chapters 2 and 3, with a uh, result of his inspection of the churches. And in one way or, or another, we, we all fit in one of those categories of churches of some way. But then when you get over into chapter 4, the last time you hear about the church anymore is in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 4, we see the events that take place after the church is raptured, as we call it, and that simply means that Jesus comes back, or semi-comes back, let me say that, and he raptures the church, or he... He takes them out of the world before the tribulation starts. Now, there are some people that believe that the rapture takes place pre-tribulation. There are some people that believe it, that the rapture takes place mid-tribulation. And still, there are others that believe the rapture actually takes place post-tribulation. We tend to interpret it here as an uh, event that takes place pre-tribulation. So as a result of that, we schedule it as the very first event of the timeline of the events that will take place in the end of days. All right. So the first thing you have is the rapture of the church in uh, chapter 4, let's say. Then in chapter 6, you have the rise of the Antichrist. That's the next event that takes place. After the rapture of the church, the, the Antichrist actually comes to power. But he comes to power first as a peaceful person, as a person that the world loves him. He is this very eloquent speaker. He is this mighty, powerful military genius. Um, he is a, a leader that all the leaders of the world are going to flock toward. And he brings in at the beginning this false peace. He almost comes in looking like a Jesus Christ himself. And, and the world flocks to him in that way. That's the second event that takes place. The third event that takes place right after the rise of the Antichrist is the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period, all right? So the Antichrist rises up. Immediately, the tribulation begins. The first three years of the tribulation are... It is uh, difficult, but nothing like the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The first three and a half years of the tribulation, basically you've got this uh, peaceful time. But then, slowly into the first three and a half years, somewhere it all breaks loose and war breaks out everywhere and people begin to die. And then we have the seals that are opened that take place throughout the tribulation. Then you have the trumpets that are blown that all have judgments that are poured out with them. Then you have bowls that are poured out. And we've been through all of those so far. So if you've been with our study, you should at least have a little bit of a reminder of what I'm talking about here. And then, <coughs> excuse me, the next event you have is the abomination of desolation, which takes place somewhere around the middle of the tribulation period. You remember the Antichrist, somewhere around the middle of the tribulation, he steps up and he declares himself to be God, himself to be uh, worthy of worship. And he has this false prophet. Y'all remember this or am I speaking French to you? He has this false prophet that is proclaiming to the world how great this Antichrist is. And now again, the world don't call him the Antichrist during this time, okay? During this time, he actually is just known as this great world leader of some kind. 
the Bible identifies him as an antichrist because he is not pro-Christ, he is antichrist. Everything he does he is empowered by Satan himself. Okay, y'all tracking with me? And then in the middle of the tribulation period, he does what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. And literally, he sets up an image of himself in the temple that is going to be rebuilt during this time. Thank you. And he and, and when he does that, it is an abomination that makes desolate the Jewish temple. And so Daniel spoke of that. Jesus spoke of that in Matthew chapter 24, I believe it is. And he told the Jews, when you see this take place, get out of there. Get out of there as fast as you can get out of there because nothing good is going to happen for you from here on out. And so it's an abomination that makes desolate. Okay? Then, after that, we have the Battle of Armageddon, which takes place at the very end of the tribulation period. So we have this, um, this abomination of desolation that takes place. Then during this time, people receive the mark of the beast, either on the right hand or the forehead. They can't buy, they can't sell unless they have this mark. We don't know what that is. We don't know what that will look like. But we do know that some way or another, it limits people from doing business at all without this mark. The ones that don't receive the mark and worship the beast, what happens to them? They die. That's simple. They are killed for their faith. The ones that do are able to continue living in this world and not just living, but they prosper. You remember how we studied a few weeks ago of, of the, the city of Babylon and how she prospered and the, the economy actually during this time is going to really increase and things are going to actually look good as far as the economy goes, all right? As far as people doing business and trading, let me say that, all right? But then there comes a point at the end where this Antichrist convinces the leaders of the world to gather together and to attack Israel, to attack God's people, and ultimately to attack God. And so when this happens, this is called the Battle of Armageddon. And this is the seventh event that takes, or the sixth event that takes place during that time. The seventh event is the judgment of nations. After the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus destroys all of them by the word of his mouth, which we're going to talk about that tonight as soon as we get into it. And after that happens, he separates the sheep from the goats. And Matthew chapter 25, we have a judgment that takes place of the nations. And then the next thing that happens, the next event, is the binding of Satan. Jesus binds Satan in a bottomless pit for a thousand years and then the millennial reign takes place. That's the next event. And then there's a thousand years of reign here on this earth where Jesus reigns and Satan is bound and he cannot uh, create havoc anymore. However, we're going to learn this maybe tonight, maybe next week, there will still be sin in this millennial kingdom. Because people are entering into this kingdom that are still worldly and still part. Not everybody dies. Not everybody is demolished. And so people from this world, sinful people, enter into the millennial kingdom. The only difference is Satan and his work and what he's doing is taking place no more. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. Satan is no longer standing before God saying, they don't really trust you. Do this to them and do this to them as we read about in the book of Job. Y'all remember that? If you take his family, he'll curse you. If you take his goods, he'll curse you. The only reason he praises you, the only reason he loves you is why? Because you blessed him so much. So just do this and do this. You don't have any of that anymore in the millennial kingdom. And so that's the next event that takes place. After the thousand years, Jesus allow Satan to be released from the bottomless pit. And I know you're going to ask the question, why in the world wouldn't you just go ahead and get rid of him? Maybe we'll answer that tonight. If not, we'll answer it next week. But Jesus allows Satan to be released from the bottomless pit for a very short time. Satan gathers all of these sinners again, and there is a final battle that the Bible calls Gog and Magog, a spiritual Gog and Magog, if you will, and this final battle takes place and it's over as quick as it starts. Jesus ends the thing. All evil is demolished. And then we have the great white throne judgment to where he calls all of those sinful, all those that are in hell, all of those that um, uh, 
were in the millennial kingdom that rebelled against him, they all stand in front of the great white throne judgment and ultimately their demise is that they are not found to be in the book of life. They're cast into the lake of fire. And then after the great white throne judgment, we have the new creation, new heaven and new earth. Those are all of the events. And you can find all of those pretty much in chronological order throughout the book of Revelation. But tonight, we're going to look at chapter 19, and specifically in chapter 19, we're going to be talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so, before we get there, tell you what, let's go ahead and read Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And we'll just read to the end of it real quick, see how far into it we get. In verse 11, it says, John says, Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or many crowns. <clears throat> and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And he said, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown into a lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That probably is one of the most disturbing things to read in all of the Word of God. Wouldn't you say so? you got this picture here of birds that are literally just feasting on flesh. All types of flesh everywhere. And if you would picture this in your mind, it's really a, a sickening picture. And what, what we're looking at here is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says there in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And so, how did we get here? What are we looking at? Well, just to take you back, if you remember in chapter 19, verse 1 through uh, 10, basically what we have there is we have the hallelujahs, if you will, the, the voices from heaven that sung out and praised God for some kind of attribute or something that He has done. If you'll notice in verse 1 of 19, it says, after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. So here's the first set of voices that we hear. And Hallelujah means what? What does Hallelujah mean? Huh? I'm sorry. Let it be. You're thinking, so. you're, you're, you're confused, but you're thinking of Amen is what you're thinking. What is Hallelujah? Praise Yahweh. Hale means praise, Yahweh means God. So hallelujah is praise God. And so the first voice or a set of voice that sounds like a great multitude in heaven and they are praising God. What are they praising Him for? Well, notice what it says in verse 1. For salvation, for glory, for power that God has, for judgment that are true and just, um, that he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. And ultimately the, what they're doing is here we have the, the martyrs, if you will, uh, that were killed during the tribulation. Now you remember in Revelation chapter 6, I believe it is. Y'all go with me there. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 6. 
Look at verse 9. Now the seals were the first set of judgments that were opened during the tribulation period. And he says in verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So during the tribulation we have all these people that are dying for their faith, right? And they're sitting under the altar of God and they're crying out, God, how long? How long before you get vengeance for us on the evil that has took place in this world and what it has done to us? And God said, here, put on a white robe. Rest a little while longer until the full number of all your brothers that are going to be killed during this time come in. And when they come in, then I'm going to have vengeance. When you get over to chapter 19, you finally have God fulfilling what He promised them back then. And what you have in this great multitude are the voices of martyrs that have died during this time. And now they are praising God because they were been, they've been crying, God, how long, how long, right? And now they're praising Him for their salvation first and foremost. And then they're praising Him for the glory of God. They're praising Him for the power that He has that belongs to Him. They're praising Him for His judgment on the prostitute. The prostitute being, you remember, the city of Babylon the false religion that she had, the one world economy that she had. And so they're praising him for his judgment on her. They're praising him because he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Remember, that's what they wanted. They wanted vengeance for the blood that, 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 that Babylon had spilt on them. Verse 3, the second, or not the second voice, they cry out again. Once more, they cry out again. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, they look and they see the judgment of God on the prostitute Babylon and they are excited about it, right? The smoke goes up forever and ever. His justice is complete. And then in verse 4, we have another voice or another set of voices. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Now, it's where Nicole just told you what that means. Amen. Let it be so. Let what be so? <coughs> Let what be so? The judgment of God. The smoke going up from her forever and ever. Praising God for His salvation, for His glory, for His power, for His justice that is true. And the 24 elders say, Amen. And the four living creatures that are the caretakers around God's throne, they join these voices and they say, Amen, let it be so. Keep, keep going, keep praising Him. And they're really encouraging here the praise of God. And then in verse 5, and from the throne, now we have another voice that joins this. A voice from the throne itself. Now we don't know who this voice is. Some say it's Jesus Himself. I don't think so because notice what the voice says. Praise our God. If it were Jesus or God of the Holy Spirit, then to me, I don't think they would say praise our God. Um, I think they would just encourage, amen, you know, keep going. But instead we have some other voice here. But here's the point that I want you to see on here. As the justice over Babylon, we've seen it in chapters 17 and 18. You remember we studied that? When we saw that judgment, now we're seeing the praise to God for this judgment. And the praise in heaven comes from the people that were killed in the system. And the praise from God is encouraged by the 24 elders who, if you remember from earlier studies, represented the fullness of the church, both Old Testament and New. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, all representing the whole of the people of God from beginning to end. 
And then you have the four living creatures who were the servants or the caretakers of God's throne. And they joined the praise with this multitude of martyrs. And then there's a voice from the throne that joins in and says, Yes, praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. So in other words, what's this voice encouraging? Everybody. Everybody ought to join in and praise it. So the worship is growing and growing and growing. Do you see that? Now in verse 6, notice what happens. Then I heard that seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Why is it so loud? Because it's so many. Every creature, every angel, every Every being that, that, that knows God and sees God and sees His justice and knows it to be true and just and is excited about it, they're all joining and there is a roar of praise probably like has never been heard before, at least by the people that are there. And notice what they say. They say, hallelujah. That's the reason I call these the hallelujah voices because every one of these voices start out with hallelujah, hallelujah, praise our God, hallelujah. And now they say, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, He reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. In other words, now that Babylon has been destroyed and now that God, Jesus is fixing to come back and He is going to throw the Antichrist and the beast into the bottomless pit, He's going to destroy all evil. Now that that takes place, the marriage supper is ready to take place. So they praise Him because the marriage of the Lamb has come and because the bride has made herself ready. Now let me explain this to you from a Jewish perspective. Some of you have heard me explain this before. But a Jewish wedding had three parts. Okay, Now we, we don't know anything about this because our weddings happen so fast today. But a Jewish wedding took a lot of time. A Jewish wedding began with an engagement. Most of the time it would happen either between two parents or it would happen between a, a male who would go to a mother and father of a female and propose a price that he could marry their daughter and a bride price had to be paid. And the reason why is because it represented something. And you remember Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 5 that for many ages marriage was a mystery, right? But... In these last days, God has revealed that mystery to us. And what did, he mean? what did He mean? Marriage concerns Christ and the church. Marriage has always been a picture of Jesus and His bride and how they are going to be one. And so a Jewish wedding, even in the Old Testament, would start out. A bride price had to be paid. The bride had to be paid for. And how many of you know that you and I, as the bride of Christ, did we have to be paid for? A price had to be paid. In the same way back then, the either the parents would come together and the, the groom's parents would come up with a price that the groom had to pay to be able to marry this girl um, or, or some way or another a bride price was paid. And then after the engagement, there would be a time of betrothal. And betrothal was a time that basically the two, the groom and the bride would come together and there would be a formal servant and they would actually exchange vows, they would commit themselves to one another, but they would not consummate the marriage. Instead, after the engagement and the betrothal took place and they committed themselves to one another, then the bride would go and wait for the groom. The groom would go back to his father's home and he would prepare a place for his bride. And he would come back one day when he has prepared a place and when that place is ready, he would come back and he would get his bride and he would bring her to that place in his father's house where they would have the marriage supper, all right, or the marriage feast, the celebration. This is why Jesus said, in my father's house are what? Many mansions. And actually, that is really better translated many rooms. In my father's house are many rooms because the disciples being Jews would have understood exactly what he's referring to. In other words, he's referring to the picture of a marriage. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to do what? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, what will I do? I will come back and I will receive you into myself and then you will go with me where I am. And so what we have there is a picture. You remember when Jesus told the parable of the wise and the foolish virgin? You remember that? Do you remember? Five of them, they were all the bridal party and they were all supposed to be ready so that when the groom called, and what would happen is most of the time it would be up to a year before the groom would get back. And during this year of betrothal, the wife would be proving her faithfulness to her bride. She would be making herself ready. She would be getting her tan on. She would be going to the gym. She's getting her dress ready. we got to pick out the dress so that when the groom comes, guess what? She's ready. And does that not what we're supposed to be doing right now in the church? We are supposed to be getting ourselves ready and, and, and preparing so that when Jesus comes back, He sees a beautiful bride. He sees exactly what He is looking for when He comes back. Now we also know that the righteous garments that He gives us to wear are His own. So it's not that we're actually trying to be as good as we can be, but in the same manner, we are trying to become more and more holy, right? And so we have this picture of a year waiting between the bride getting herself ready and the groom preparing a plate. Now once those things are done and the groom is ready, the groom, and it would usually be at midnight during a Jewish wedding, he would come down and they had to have their lamps ready. This was the reason why. Five of them were wise and they had oil in their lamps, right? Five of them were foolish. They didn't have oil, alright? Because they knew that it would be a midnight cry whenever the groom came. And guess what happened while, while they were all sleeping? Now they were all sleeping, right? The wise and the foolish. But the cry was sounded. The groom came at midnight and the wise got up, trimmed their lamps, they were ready to go out to meet the party. And so in a Jewish picture, you would have the groom and his groom party. And they're coming down the street and the cry comes out. The groom is coming. The groom is coming. And that was their cue for the bridal party to come out into the street with their lamps trimmed and they would go to the father's house where the marriage supper would be. And so basically what we see here in this right here is that before we get to this coming of Jesus, they're celebrating because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bridegroom is coming. And now we are making ourselves ready and we are trimming our lamps and we're getting up. But guess what happened to the ones that didn't have their lamps trimmed? They didn't get to join the party. They didn't get to go. Now they went trying to get ready, but they waited too late. They went and tried to buy more oil. You remember that? And when they got back, they went to knock on the door and they said, Open to us. Do you remember what the groom said? I don't know who you are. It's too late. In other words, if you had been wise, you would have had oil in your lamp. You would have been ready. You would have been waiting. You would have been making yourself ready. You would have been watching for the bridegroom. You would have been listening for his cry, even if it came at midnight. That's the reason why they were wise. Is because even though they were resting, even though they were sleeping, they were ready. They were ready. They were watching. They were waiting. And when the cry happened, they had their ticket to the marriage supper. They had their light. They met them out on the street and together with all their lights, they marched to the father's house and the marriage supper took place. Remember the engagements already took place. When did your engagement to Jesus take place? That's right. And they couldn't do it, could they? That's right. Fagan makes a good point. you got to have your own oil. you got to be ready yourself. That's right. Yeah, the foolish ones in that story, they said, give us some of your oil. Remember what they said? We can't do that unless there's not enough for us. Go to the ones that sell the oil and then come. They tried to do that, but by then it was too late. In other words, don't wait till the last minute to be ready. 
put your faith and your trust in Jesus today. Make your betrothal to him today. The engagement has already been made. How's the engagement been made? The groom went to the father and said, how much for the bride? And the father said, this is what's owed. He said, I'll pay the price. And he paid the price. The engagement has already been made. The betrothal takes place when you put your faith and trust in him and you make your commitment to him. You declare him as your groom, as your Lord, as your Savior. And now we're making ourselves ready. We're waiting. We're watching until he comes again. And when he comes again, it's going to be time for the marriage supper. These people are looking and they're saying it's almost time. It's almost time. It's time for Jesus to come back and now when he collects his people, we're all going in together for the marriage supper. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 7 of Revelation 19. And his bride has done what? She's made herself ready. She's been waiting on him. And so that's what we have going on here. So by the time we get to Revelation 19 verse 11, what we see here is now we're fixing to see all this take place. The Lord, the groom, is coming. He has prepared the place. Everything is ready. He's coming back and he is going to have his bride with him. They're all going to get ready to go to the marriage supper together. But before that happens, very quickly, he's got to take care of a few things. And this is what he does. In verse 11, he says, Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. This is what Jesus comes back on. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. And so what we see here is this. We see that his second coming is very different than his first coming. Alright? Y'all go with me to Luke. Hold your place there and go with me to Luke chapter 17. look at verse 20. We're going to look at the difference between his first coming and his second coming and what Jesus had to say about it. So in Luke 17 beginning in verse 20 it says, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. They're still looking for his first coming, right? This is what, we're, this is what they're talking about. They don't know that he's the one. They don't believe he is anyway. And so when they want to know, okay, Jesus, you're some great prophet. You're somebody from God. We can tell a little bit about that. But when is, the, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now remember, when he first came, who knew about it? The shepherds, the angels. But... When Jerusalem, when, they, when, when the wise men came into Jerusalem and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What did Herod say? Huh? What are you talking about? And then all, all Jerusalem is troubled. Nobody knew about it. All right? And he says here, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm here. You want to know when the kingdom of God is coming? It didn't come in ways that can be observed because I'm here and you didn't even know it. That's what he's saying. Now a lot of people try to translate that that it's in the midst of you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I'm here. You're looking for the kingdom of God. It came. I'm here and you didn't even know it. Now look what he says next in verse 22. Now he turns his conversation to his disciples and he said to his disciples, the days are coming when, we, when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. In other words, the first coming is gonna, has already come, it's going to go, and you're going to wish that you could see it again. But you're not going to see it. That's the disciples. But look what he says in verse 23. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, but do not go out or follow them. Why? Because verse 24. And now we're talking about his second coming. Because as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in His day. What does that mean? When He comes back, what's it going to be like? 
You ever, you ever watch the lightning flash so strong and powerful that it lights up one side of the sky all the way to the other and it looks like daylight for just a split moment? You seen that before? He said, that's an example of what I want you to understand. The first coming, it didn't come with observation. People didn't know it. It was quiet. He was born in a manger. He came as a human being. He came as the lowliest of the people, the poorest of the people. He came riding on a donkey, right? But the second coming <laughs> ain't going to be like that. And notice what he says next in verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, normal everyday life is going to be going on and when he comes, boom. Everything was just as you thought it should be and then the flood comes and destroys it all. And that's the way the, that the second coming of Jesus is going to be like. Look what he says in verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Ain't that what we're doing today? But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. That fast. And then notice what he says in verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop, and remember in Jewish culture, the way that we sit out on our patios or we sit out on our front porch in the swing, Jewish culture, their front porch was the rooftop. Everybody sat on the rooftop. That's where they were. And he says here, in that day, if you're on the rooftop, when you see the lightning flash from one side of the sky to the other, and we don't know if that's what it'd be, but it's going to be observable is basically. When you see the Lord Jesus come back, look what he says. If you're up on the housetop with your goods in the house, don't come down to try to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back at any of this stuff that is leaving behind. When the Lord Jesus is revealed and you know it's Him, because just like the lightning flash from one side to the other, you know it. So if they come and say, look, here He is and there He is, don't believe none of it because one thing is for certain. When He comes back, you will know. There will be no question. And when that happens, if you're sitting out on your porch and you've got your diamond engagement ring in the house, don't turn around and go get that thing. You ain't taking it with you. Your Mercedes is in the driveway. Leave it there. You're not taking it with you. And then the warning. Remember Lot's wife because what did Lot's wife try to do? He wanted to go back. And so look what he says in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Now this is not talking about the rapture here. A lot of people try to interpret that as this. This is not talking about the rapture. This is actually talking about his second coming. The rapture's already took place. He's talking about when he comes back, there's going to be one that's going to be taken and one that's going to be destroyed. In other words, it's going to be some that's going to make it, some that won't. But no matter, no matter who it is, the main thing you need to be understanding is you're looking and waiting to go that way, not turn around and go back this way. You keep your eyes fixed on that. And then notice what he says. There will be... Two women grinding together and in that day again you would rise up early in the morning and go to the mill and grind your corn and these women are grinding together but one will be taken, the other will be left. And they said to him, where Lord? Where are they going to be left? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now remember that when we get back to Revelation chapter 19. All right, Go back with me to Revelation 19. So there's a big difference in the first coming and the second coming, right? The first coming, Jesus didn't come on a horse, did He? Jesus came as a child, as a baby, in a trough, a feeding, a feeding place for animals to a very poor family, and as humble as they come. But when He comes back this time, He said, Heaven opened and behold, a white horse. 
and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. He's come to rain fire. He's come to bring the flood. He didn't come to bring peace anymore. Peaceful times are over. And then notice what he says in verse 12. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. What's John trying to paint a picture of us here? He's trying to show you the, the authority and the power and the vengeance of the second coming, right? And then he says, and on his head are many crowns. What does that mean? Great authority. Great authority. None more, more, more has more authority than him. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So there, uh, if you want me to interpret that for you, I'll tell, tell you. We don't know. <laughs> Verse 13. I, I thought it would be. <clears throat> he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. We're going to see here in just a minute that with a single word, Jesus takes care of it all. We don't even have to fight. We come back with him. But with a single word, Jesus takes care of it all. Let's look at a few scriptures from the Old Testament that show us pictures of this. Because what's beautiful about the Bible is that it was written over a period of thousands of years. And yet, it has complete unity from beginning to end. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. The first thing we see is this army that marches from the enemies of God toward Jerusalem. And he says here in verse 63, verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom? Again, this is enemy of God, all right? In crimson garments from Basra, who is he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments? In other words, Jesus is pictured here coming from the place of attacking God's enemies. Y'all see this? And here he is coming back, and he's marching in great strength, mighty to save. And they ask him in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And listen to what he says in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And you're going to see that in Revelation 19 played out. But go with me to Zechariah. Zechariah is right before Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14. Verses 3 through 5. It says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Alright, now go with me to Malachi chapter 4, the next book over. I'm trying to make this as easy on you as I can. Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 6. 
Malachi. The very what did I say? I'm sorry, Malachi. The very last book of the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Back to the New Testament. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, talking about the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is when we look at Jesus coming between the first and the second time, is are they anything alike at all? Nothing. When he comes back, he comes with all authority. He comes with raging vengeance. And he comes to devour with just the word of his mouth. And notice what he says here in Revelation 19 again. It says that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood in verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And remember what was the blood from according to Isaiah 63? All the enemy's blood had splattered all over him. Like treading a wine press. Like he'd been stomping grapes. And then notice what it says again. And the name by he, which he is called is the Word of God. You remember in the Old Testament when God wanted to do something. He wanted to make light. What do you do? Let there be light. And what happens? Well, let's move that over into the New Testament. If Jesus wanted to heal someone, what did he say? If he wanted to a lame person to walk, what did he do? Or if he wanted Lazarus to come forth, what did he do? Lazarus come forth. No matter what he spoke, it happened, right? And what we see Jesus come back here is with the breath of his mouth, literally with just his word, with just his word, the lawless one, the Antichrist, He's gone. It is that simple. His enemy. And he says that the victory, the part you're going to play in the victory is you're going to walk on the ashes. You're just going to walk on his victory, on what's left. He does it all by himself. Now keep reading with me in Revelation 19 verse 14 because notice what he says next. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Who's that? That's us. All the armies of heaven are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Why is he coming? He's coming to rule. He's coming to rule with a rod of iron. And he's going to, notice what he says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, it is not going to be anything like the first coming. When he comes, all evil is going to be diminished by the word of his mouth. And all of those that belong to him will follow him on white horses and we'll walk on the ashes of his victory. And now, keep going with me in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. 
come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Why are the birds going to have so much to eat? Remember what he told them in Matthew chapter 24? They, he said, one will be taken and the other will be left. You remember what they asked? Where, Lord? Remember what Jesus said? Where the corpses are. That's where the vultures will be gathered. Now John MacArthur had a pretty interesting, um, interesting fact that I didn't know about. But he said that he, one time he went to Tel Aviv in Israel to the main airport there. And he said that all of their pilots have to go through training before they can fly in there about how to deal with birds. He said more planes go down in that area of the world by birds than by pilot era, by war, by anything else. More planes go down because of birds. He said an interesting fact is that um, that is a central place for all the birds to migrate to because they don't want to fly over the Mediterranean Sea. And so they don't want to be in the deserts to the east because they need food as they fly. And so all the birds from all over the world, no matter where they're flying, from north to south, wherever they're migrating to, that is a central spot for all the birds to converge. And there are more birds in this area of the world at certain times of the year than anywhere else in the world combined for the most part. And he said that's just an interesting fact that there's going to be an angel that's going to call for the birds to say, come, gather for the great supper of God. And there is going to be a feast laid out for vultures and all types of birds that come. And so again, that's just an interesting fact to me. But then in verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two... Talking about the Antichrist and his preacher, the false prophet. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And what you have here is the battle of Armageddon. The kings and all the nation's leaders have been rallied up by the Antichrist and deceived into coming after Israel and attacking Israel. And at that time, just when it looks like there's no hope for Israel, at that time, Jesus comes back and He sets His feet down on Mount Zion and all His armies come with Him and with just the word of His mouth, He devours all the enemies of God so that the beast and the, prop, the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire to be eternally tormented and then all of the ones that followed him are devoured by the sword of his mouth and you'll see the fulfillment. Go to Psalm chapter 2. This is where it was prophesied and I'll close with this. Next week we'll talk about the binding of Satan because that's what he does next. But look at Psalm chapter 2 and you'll see that this is what was prophesied in Psalm chapter 2 and you see it fulfilled here. Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Notice what he says here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them. And then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This has been prophesied back in Psalm. In Revelation 19, you see it fulfilled. But let me tell you something. Every one of these kings, all these people laying on the ground and the vultures and the birds devouring their flesh, don't you feel sorry for them. They were warned. They were warned. They were told, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Trust in Jesus. If not, His wrath is kindled quickly. He laughs right now at you trying to burst your bonds off of Him, at you trying to burst His cords off of you. You laugh right now. But or God laughs right now. But His wrath is kindled quickly. And there is coming a day in Revelation chapter 19 that when He comes again, you better have your oil ready. You better be ready for the marriage supper. You better be rejoicing with the voices that sing hallelujah before this. Because if you're not ready, you're going to be part of the wrath of God that comes in His second coming. And it's going to be completely different than His first coming. Alright, any questions tonight? Next week we'll start in Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 through 3 and we'll look at the binding of Satan and then we'll go to the first resurrection. We'll look at those two events that take place there. Alright? Because he, well, that is their judgment. That is their judgment. It's kind of like they were demonically... This was basically Satan in the flesh, if you will. Um, Satan handed all of his power, all of his authority over to this demonic being. So this... Um, I, would, I would almost say that he was probably not even human as much as he was demon of some way. Alright? And you remember when... Um, you remember when Jesus... Uh, healed the demon-possessed man and the demons came out of him and they said they were scared of something. You remember what they were scared of? They said, Lord, please don't do what? Don't send us to the abyss before it's time. In other words, and they asked to go to the swine. You remember that? Please don't send us to the... They were scared of going to this place of torment. And so... I believe that this was the time that these demons, whoever they were that, were, that 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 were part of this Antichrist and this false prophet, and I believe that it was time and this is their judgment. The only reason Satan doesn't go, Satan is bound, and you're going to see that next week and he's cast into a bottomless pit, is because God is not done with him. God is still going to bring him out after a thousand years and he's going to use him again. He's going to use him again. And we'll talk about that next, that next week. Because... If you were to look at Revelation 19 or Revelation 20, I think it is. Revelation chapter 20, yeah, look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, where all the, the worst of the angels went. And this angel had a great chain, and he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now when I read that, what do you think my first question is? Why? You've got him bound. You've got him trapped. He... He's, he can't do anything. Why didn't you do with him what you did to the Antichrist and the false prophet? Well, that's the question we answer next week. Okay. A hint? Nah. That's it. Alright. Alright, any other questions for tonight? Next week, if you want to study a little bit ahead, I'm going to be looking at the different resurrections, the first resurrection and the second resurrection, and I'm going to be looking at the, the judgment. Is there one judgment? Are there three different judgments? And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at next week and uh, looking at those events that take place.
and the timing of them. All right. Everybody confused? All right. Well, thank you all for your time and attention. We're going to close in a word of prayer, and you will be dismissed. So let's pray. Father, we come to you once again and just want to say thank you for your word. And Lord, I know that the purpose that you gave us this letter is so that we might know the things that must take place soon. Father, you don't expect us to understand and see every detail of it, but you do want us to know the at least the, the gist of, of the things that are going to take place in the end times. Father, I just pray that, um, Lord, each and every one of us are looking forward. Father, I pray that we have our lamp oiled up. Father, I pray they're trimmed. And Father, I pray we're watching and waiting. Father, I pray that we're making ourselves ready. Father, I pray that we truly are looking for your coming and that when you come, Father, we want you to be pleased with what your son sees. And so, Father, I pray, God, that, um, Lord, that you would help us to make sure that we understand that these things truly are going to take place. And, Father, Lord willing, we won't be here. Father, we might. We don't know. If we're interpreting it correctly, we won't. But, Father, I just pray, God, that, Lord, whether we're here when the tribulation happens or we're here and you rapture us out before that, Father, I pray that we are ready all the same. Father, help us to be wise. Lord, help us to not be foolish. And Father, I thank you so much for this word and for the warning that you've given us to be wise, to kiss the sun, to be ready. Father, I pray that each and every one of us here tonight can say that we are. Father, we love you and we praise you and we ask you to do these things in Jesus' name.